Hello and welcome to episode 181 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Schultz. Today on the podcast, we see if Joe Wright can atone for his 2021 sins with our review of the musical romance, Cyrano. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing well. It's uh, I mean, we've been releasing podcasts every week, but eagle-eyed listeners or listeners with a brain cell will realize that we recorded last week's episode. Eagle-eared listeners, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah. <laughs> eagle, eagle-sensed listeners would recognize that we recorded that episode a, a little while ago, considering we didn't talk about any of the major like Oscar controversies that have happened since the day of nominations release. So it's been a minute. Um, I was out in Maine for a week and a half plus, doing some doing some stuff, and that was a lot of a lot of fun. It was restful and relaxing. Um, you know, hopefully started some good habits. I started exercising when I was up there, and now I've been exercising for two and a half weeks, which is probably the longest series of time that I've exercised consistently since high school. Maybe I don't know. It's been a while. Uh, maybe college. Maybe like first year of college, I exercised. But anyway, um, yeah. No, thanks for going well. You know, while I was up in Maine, I saw a little movie called Cyrano, and uh, I guess we're going to talk about it today. So that's exciting. How have you been? It, I feel like we haven't talked in a while as well. Yeah, it has been a while. Like you said, we had those uh, podcasts we put in the tank. But yeah, no complaints. Uh, I, I guess I haven't really done anything super uh, super noteworthy recently. Watching a lot of basketball. It's getting to be that, that good time of year. Yesterday, the top six teams in the AP poll all lost for the first time in uh, college basketball history. So, And I was going to say, it's like it just feels like it's anyone's Anyone on yeah. any day this year, it feels like. It's shaping up to be, you know, another great March Madness. I mean, again, Gonzaga, you would have said that they were the top team team to beat sure. yesterday. Um, and they always just seem to run right through their conference uh, with no problem, undefeated. But they lost to St. Mary's last night. I think it was the first time they lost the conference game since like a couple years ago in the championship when they lost to St. Mary's also. But um, yeah, you know, and then Auburn and Kentucky both went down yesterday. Uh, Purdue, uh, Arizona, all the, you know, all the top six teams, like I said, losing. So um, it's shaping up to be another great March Madness. I'm going to be going to um, Asheville next weekend to see if Furman can get over its cursed history with uh, the SoCon tournament and actually make it to the big dance. I'm not optimistic, but we'll see what happens. Um, and then, I don't know, uh, SEC tournament is the weekend after that. I'm kind of thinking it, it's in Tampa. If if things happen, I might like try to catch a sneaky Allegiant flight or something for like 60 bucks because the, they, they've got, you know, uh, the, Florida is like a big hub for Allegiant. So you can find those flights pretty cheap usually down sure. there but i don't know if i'm feeling that adventurous we'll see the more the bigger adventure would be the ticket right less the less the plane yeah i guess so i mean i i don't really know what those tickets run but uh, i imagine you know deeper stages of the tournament you're probably talking a good good chunk of money but if tennessee's in the final i might be willing to do it we'll see yeah i know my, my mom tried to go see it was a while ago now, but tried to go see the SEC tournament when it was in Nashville. And maybe because it was bridged down, I, I don't know, but it was like stupid expensive. Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't even looked into it. It was just kind of a cockamamie idea. I had it's a, it's a whim that, that feels super that. enticing, though, for sure. Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, other than that, uh, just I mean, coming back to New York in, uh, in May to visit you. So that looking forward to that as well. And uh, just getting ready for the Oscars, I guess, movie-wise here in a few weeks um, with all the drama that has been going on that we're going to talk about uh, yeah. in the second half of the show. Um, but as mentioned, Scott, our film today is Cyrano, which is director Joe Wright's musical adaptation of the famous play by Edmund Rostand with songs by Bryce and Aaron Dessner from The National. This time, the titular wordsmith is played by Peter Dinklage, and it's his height rather than his large nose, which is declared by society his great fault and the thing which keeps him from the affections of the woman he loves, the beautiful Roxanne, played by Haley Bennett. One day, Roxanne confesses to Cyrano that despite not speaking a single word to this person, she has fallen for someone, a guard in Cyrano's regiment named Christian de Nouvellet, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., Cyrano soon discovers that Christian shares Roxanne's feelings, but has a fatal flaw. 
He can't speak with the same romantic eloquence that Cyrano has and that Roxanne desires in a partner. So the two men devise a plan to woo Roxanne together, with Cyrano writing passionate love letters in Christian's name and Christian playing the dashing physical specimen that Cyrano is not. But the plan has a foil in the form of the villainous Count de Guiche, played by Ben Mendelsohn, who also loves Roxanne and will stop at nothing to marry her. Scott Wright's latest period romance tells a familiar story, but in the new form of a musical. Is his fresh take a lively update that will satisfy the hopeless romantic in everyone? Or does it collapse under the weight of its own ambition? Yeah, it was a film that I thought was going to... I guess I just didn't know what to think, right? Like, we read Cyrano in high school. Was it ninth grade? Tenth grade? We read it some, grade, I believe, yeah. Sometime in there, we, we read it. Um. I'll tell you how much I remembered. If you told me that it was, if you told me that it wasn't a play, I would have believed you, <laughs> just because I I remember very little, honestly, about about the about the play. But you know, Peter Dinklage, Kelvin Harrison Jr., Ben Mendelsohn, thing things that I get excited about, honestly. You know, I haven't seen all of Game of Thrones, but I mean, with the the two and a half three seasons I did see, I mean, Peter Dinklage is a, is a big standout for me and I've enjoyed him in the random other things that I feel like I've seen him in since then Joe, Joe Wright directing a directing a period romance versus a, a psychological thriller set in the present day I mean I think one of those genres he's found a little bit more success in than the other so yes. it was certainly promising and, and the fact that there was going to be a musical spin I thought was interesting I thought it was more interesting that it was the national that was giving the musical spin as opposed to you know some other musical muse but and i should say that this is actually based on a very unknown stage musical from 2018 that the national also wrote the songs for but yeah like you would be forgiven for not knowing that because i don't think it had any like major runs anywhere or anything i only discovered that because i was like clicking around <laughs> trying to figure out how this thing was made a little bit yeah. after i watched and i was like based on cyrano <laughs> which is based on Cyrano de Bergerac. I was like, whoa, man, meta, meta text right there. Um, yeah. But yeah, The National, which was an interesting choice in there. I mean, if you're familiar with The National, you're going to be like, hmm, The National and a period romance in Cyrano. Like, that's kind of a strange combination. So I, I think to then go back to your question and say, like, it has lofty ambitions, I think. And like you'd expect so, I think, with Joe, right? Like, the guy's not doing safe stuff a lot of the time anymore which is which is awesome I mean, fair enough we like to see big swings i think that there are moments in this film where it totally exceeds its, its ambition it uh, goes way over the top in certain moments these like really i even call them like sweeping moments where the the music soars or there's this deeply emotional um moment that dinklage is able to really tap into effectively those moments really work, uh, but the film overall just felt kind of uneven. So I, I don't know if I'd say it sinks under its own ambition, but it's just not able to maintain that high for me that I feel like it's capable of of conjuring in, in certain moments. I find the the highs really high and and the lows kind of low, maybe because the highs are so high at the same time. Like it, it just really sweeps in and out, and you have these moments where there's like. It really feels like the the film is really digging into something and and, and tapping into something deeper. And another moments where you're like, it's hard to believe sometimes. Like some of these scenes are in the same film as each other, just for the quality uh, between them. But overall, I really enjoyed it. Um, Kelvin Kelvin Harrison Jr. Like if I didn't know he was in this movie going in, I found him to be like pretty unrecognizable in the film. Something about the beard, I think, because he's just normally very clean shaven. I had a hard time um, seeing. You know the 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 young man from Loose and um, the High Note and things like I just had a hard time seeing him, but I thought that he was good. But like I, I almost like had a hard time believing him in this in this role. Something about it, I, I'm I'm not 100 percent sure. I think that he might have been the weakest of of the you know central four performances. But the guy can sing like that. That's the facts. Um, there's the there's the one at the training grounds. I can't remember the musical number, which is just awesome. 
it's in the trailers too. I, I can't remember what the yeah. name of the song is. Something to say, I think, is the name of it. Or yeah, something. that sounds right. That that song was excellent. Absolutely Someone to it. say, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, thought that was excellent. And yeah, then there's other parts later on in the film. To not get into any spoilers for people who are less familiar with with the plot of of the play, but there were there were some good moments towards the end of the film as well. Yeah, I, I think the movie is like. A lot of great parts that maybe don't add up to a whole, a yeah. satisfying whole. Weirdly I enough, agree with that. Um, I think part of the problem for me is it's very rushed. It feels like the events of the plot feel like they move very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. And we're talking about they are adapting a play that is in like five acts, so like it's a significant, it's a play of significant length. Um, the musical itself is probably, you know, longer than the film that we see here, I would guess, but I don't, I don't know for certain. Um, but especially like, like, you know, the initial meeting is all that is good. Like that felt reasonable to me, but then it's like, all of a sudden we're right in the middle of the, their partnership together and the balcony scene, mm -hmm. which you feel like. I don't know. I just expected like more of a build up to that, I guess. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's just like, I mean, you are 50 minutes into the movie or something, but it's like, oh, this is happening now. The, well, they the spend like 15 minutes just in the opening scene, which I thought, which I think is a hilarious, yeah. great scene. But they spend a lot of mileage introducing you to, you know, Peter Dinklage's Cyrano and yeah. Haley Bennett's Roxanne. They they do take their time, which I think is is not a fault. That is a good thing. But then when you realize you only have X number of minutes to to shove the rest of the plot in. I, I I agree that it felt a little bit rushed. Yeah, like the last two acts of the play take up probably 20 minutes of the film. And yeah. five of those minutes are spent on a song that doesn't actually have anything to do with the plot, which I loved. I thought that that was a wonderful song, but I, the, the soldiers there, like in the mm -hmm. uh, trench or wherever they are, um, and there's a few different soldiers who are not like major characters in the, the actual um, story. One of them is Glenn Hansard, who um, is was the guy from Once and is a folk singer. But um, I don't I didn't recognize who like the other couple people were. But anyway, um, they have a song just about like what they've left behind coming to war. And uh, it's a really lovely moment, but like, it's just like, it exists in a vacuum almost again. It, it's a lovely moment when it, it, you look at it, like as existing in a vacuum, but then in the grand scheme of things, like I said, it's like five minutes of the movie that, you know, don't really have anything to do with the plot. And, you know, so we're, we're you're basically devoting like 10, 15 minutes to the last two acts of the, the play, which is just, it doesn't, the pacing is off. Uh, that's the main issue I had with the movie. Um, yeah. Otherwise, though, I think it's it's strong. It's what I would hope for from Joe Wright, who, yeah, again, I mean, per period romances um, are his thing. Uh, Pride and Prejudice, Atonement, Anna Karenina. Um, you know, those are three top class, um, you know, movies right there at the top of the list in terms of like, you know, these types of movies that have come out over the past 20 years or so. Um, and yeah, he's, he's ambitious as well. Anna Karenina is probably the best example of that. The whole thing like takes place basically inside like the walls of a theater. It's very like creative, um, the way that he stages that. But, um, so, so I was intrigued by this film, of course, when I heard, and yeah, Bryce and Aaron Dessner doing the songs. Um, yeah, I agree, you know, may not have, uh, may have been weird when I first heard about it. Of course, Aaron Dessner has now like produced Taylor Swift's latest albums. So um, he's like branching out a little bit in a way, like in a more commercial way, I guess, which, um, you know, might change your perspective a little bit on is he able to deliver like music for this commercial film that people are going to remember? I think they do a good job. I think he and Bryce, his brother, do a good job. Um, I think, you know, it's not the big bombastic Broadway style numbers but that's not really what the movie calls for i think um it's definitely um you know it calls for something a little more yearning and soft and um you know soaring like you said at times but not you know bombastic or it's it's like slow rock you know it's got a yeah yeah it's a little it's a it's got a touch of sadness to it sure um 
And I really like that the movie is, you know, it really does wear its heart on its sleeve. Like my friend Zach Ford would call this like earnest cinema or whatever, um, which he, you know, said about come on, come on. Like that's why it's his favorite, favorite movie of last year. But um, this definitely would fall in the camp too. I think all the characters are really just sort of open hearted about their feelings and everything. And the movie is like, in general, just very open in its romantic spirit, um, which is a good thing. Um, you know, it will definitely appeal to the hopeless romantics out there, um, which I think is just really the the core of the the story. What the, what the you know the ethos that's driving the story anyway. So it makes sense that the movie would be that way. And I think the strongest element of all, if we want to transition, is Peter Dinklage's performance. Um, I think he's outstanding in the movie and definitely would have deserved a nomination. I I hate talking and, and, you know, like comparing everything to the Oscars, like, oh, they would have deserved a nomination or they wouldn't have deserved a nomination or whatever. I don't know. It feels like a reductive way to talk about performances. I actually but. think it's the only way we should talk about anything related to movies. So for like every element I mean, of the film, this didn't deserve a nomination for screenplay. This didn't deserve yeah. a nomination for acting. This deserved a total of eight nominations, um, and I will now go through each. That of would them. be a hilarious. Uh, honestly, Scott, that'd be a hilarious bit if we did that. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's podcasts out there where you can find people doing that. The Oscar expert or whatever, the guy who who has the reaction videos on YouTube where he goes and saying that stuff is Lights Camera Jackson. Yeah, yeah, L L LCJ probably has something like that too. Yeah. When he's not, um, you know, <laughs> making a Dune related version of the that thing he do song, but. Um, that killed me. anyway, Peter, not a Peter Dinklage, fantastic. Uh, he should have gotten a nomination in my opinion. Um, and I think he didn't because MGM just did not know what to do with this movie. Obviously, like it got so delayed its release. Yeah. Like we just never knew when it was going to come out. Like they kept pushing it back like a few weeks. And now I mean, a like, couple weeks ago, this film was supposed to come out in December. Yeah. Like, what? Happened? And you would you would think of it as a big Oscar play. I mean, again, Joe Wright's previous films, at least, at least I don't know that Anna Karenina got any nominations, but um, Atonement and Pride and Prejudice did, certainly. Um, you know, he, and, and his last movie, or not his last movie, because, well, what I wish was his last movie, but The Darkest Hour, um, you know, was an Academy Award winning film. So you would think. Noted that, period you know, romance that, movie, The Darkest Hour. Yeah, that MGM would want to to put, you know, have this as an Oscar play. But I guess, you know, what else did they have? They have um, Licorice Pizza. I don't remember who made it. I'm pretty sure, yes, I'm pretty sure they did. Yeah, I was just yeah. trying to think of what else it would have would have been its competition. But I want to say they had do Licorice they have Pizza. Maybe, I mean, do they maybe have Belfast. Pizza? Maybe Belfast also. Yeah, no, no, no. no. Bel Belfast was Focus. Okay. Focus Features. Um, No, I think Licorice Pizza was Braun or whatever that... Um, so they had no time I don't know. to they die. Might, they might all be under that umbrella. But anyway, it's not important. Um, what is important? Peter Dinklage. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm not, I was not a Game of Thrones watcher. So I, you know, it was not, I didn't keep up with his performance there. But I'm glad that Game of Thrones is, you know, brought him into the limelight because hopefully he will start getting more roles like like leading roles, like he got, he got here. And then and also, you know, a movie that I watched last year for the first time, The Station Agent, which is back, a movie from the early 2000s. But he also is the lead role in that. And I thought he was wonderful in that movie as well. So um, I think he can really shine when he is given, you know, the spotlight, like he was, you know, like he has been in these two movies. And like he, I guess he was in Game of Thrones. I mean, Tyrion may not be like the, quote unquote main character but like he is a main character in game of thrones and like certainly like a scene stealing yeah. character no, no um, one no he's like he's like definitely a lead character and and it's like yeah i mean it evolves over the show right because people come and go mm -hmm. from the show and he won multiple emmy won multiple emmys for his performance there so. also so mgm had house of gucci they had licorice pizza and cyrano no time to die that's okay. about it and respect well, still, I would have thought, you know, that they would have wanted to at, le at the very least for um, for best best actor, I guess, is what I'm saying is that, like, sure, maybe the movie itself is a little too idiosyncratic to have, like, gotten overall recognition. But Peter Dinklage, I think, definitely deserved a best actor nomination, certainly when you look at the fact that, like, Javier Bardem is in there nominated. Um, 
I don't think Javier Bardem being in there is a factor of whether MGM campaigned for the movie or not. No, no, but no, no. I, did, I, know, I agree. But I, I'm just yeah. I'm saying in terms of does he deserve it? Yeah, you know, because going back to what I was saying, you'll hear people say that all the time. They'll watch a movie and they'll be like, oh, he deserved the nomination without actually knowing who was nominated that year. And then, like, you know, you go back sure. and you look sometimes and it's like, OK, well, actually, all the people murderers are really good. Yeah. Um, but no, that's not really the case with this year. But, um, yeah, he really nails the emotional stuff, like, especially towards the end of the movie. Like, even though, you know, even what I was saying about the end of the movie being rushed, like, it it actually has, like, my favorite, some of my favorite scenes in the movie, weirdly enough. Again, it's just like this. But not because they're narratively like, cohesive, though. Yeah, just the individual parts being really strong. Like, I really liked the last scene. Um, I thought it was very moving. Um, A complete then, yeah, remake like, of from, from the play, not what happens in the play. Are you sure about that? I'm pretty sure it is. Well, like, the, the cause and this this okay the context of what happens in the last okay okay is different. um yeah you might be right i can't remember exactly the play i mean i i remembered parts of the ending that were consistent with the movie but yeah, okay spoilers for, spoilers for the play details. he has like yeah. a something something gets dropped on his head like he's not injured in the war um and then something gets like it's after the war however many in years the play, later you mean something gets dropped on him yeah, yeah like it's like yeah. something falls like something falls out of a window and falls on his head and he dies in the street as opposed to making it to like the abbey i'm pretty sure Right. Okay. I remember though, like, you know, he, she, he reads the last letter or whatever. And that's like what happens at the end. Um, yeah. He's like in the hospital, like from the play, I believe, but yeah. 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 Um, anyway, so, but he gives a great performance. He really nails all that emotional stuff. Like I said, he, he, you know, he's very convincing as like the forlorn poet, right. Who just, you know, is longing for this, um, this woman, like you can really feel, uh, you know, what's the the pain inside of him. Like when the Christian tells him, I think that they're going to get married or whatever, like, or whoever tells him, I don't think it's actually Christian. He finds out from somebody else maybe, but um, he, like the reaction that he has in that moment of like simultaneous, like just like, just like mixed feelings, like the conflict of knowing like, well, in a sense he has won her over, right? Because it's his words that have really, um, convinced roxanne that this is the person for her but you know it's not actually physically going to be him who she yeah. is you know wet to that's really the con the inner conflict the whole time that he's facing and i think he he uh portrays it very convincingly and you know makes you feel for him i think it was i think he was a great choice for this obviously again you know cyrano in the play has his big nose that's like what his defining feature is um but I think they did a it, it was certainly a reasonable update that they made, you know, making it more about height um, and, you know, Peter Dinklage being a, a natural choice for that role. And I think, you know, knocking it out of the park. Agreed. Yeah, he's great. I uh, he, I think he shows a lot of versatility as well, which I think is also true of Game of Thrones and other stuff that he's done. But going from, you know, these these musical moments in the play to like having this like weird conversation with someone, you know, about his like internal turmoil and conflict and his like plight as, uh, you know, someone of his stature and someone of his physicality to live this life of almost second citizenness in the eyes of the person that he loves. That's probably too harsh, but then goes into this like massive, like, but he seven, feels like he does, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like seven minute wonder where he's like fighting ten guards in an alleyway in the yeah. dark. Like just does it all, man. He can do it all. Um, really felt like he was it, honestly, I mean, I'm I'm sure this is not the first person to make this joke, but it feels like this was like a a series of deleted scenes of a musical from Game of Thrones. Like it's that it's not that, but like it's like that, it's that vibe, it's that setting. He's like the sad boy, um, sort of. You know, because in, in Game of Thrones, he's the ugly duckling sibling of the Lannisters and isn't really respected in the same way that his brother and sister are. And this is like he's comes off ultimately as inferior because of his of his stature and his physicality. But yeah, he's great. I think he hits all the right emotional beats. To me, the the moments that don't resonate are not because of his performance and more just for the parts you were saying around some of the narrative cohesion seemed a little bit lacking at times. And if anything, I think he elevates this as much as he's capable of um, as much as any individual actor might be capable of. And I think that his, the, 
the tone that he brings to the performance really matches everything else going on. Like I feel, you know, we t- I talked about, you know, we talked about the soft rock sort of national score here, musical inflection being on the sadder side and, and the emotion that he brings to it, just almost the way that he carries himself almost. It feels like it all that that part at least fits together really well, which is not necessarily something that you'd say automatically on paper works, but something about the he's able to bring like some sort of glue to between, you know, the narrative, the music and the performance that I think is really makes this sing in, in its best moments. Yeah, totally agree. And like I said, I hope he will continue to get leading roles off of um off of this movie. Um, but I mean, again, the movie is not, I, I don't think it's probably doing that well. And MGM really seemed to try and bury it. So maybe it won't be the boon for his career that we may have hoped for, but I, I mean, to be still, fair, I, think, I don't think that they tried to bury it. I just think that they, they finessed it a little too much, you know, like they tried to get really cute with a late release and have it relevant for Oscar season. And they screwed it up. Like I just don't think it worked. Yeah, it definitely didn't work um, because most people aren't seeing the movie until now. And the Oscar nominations came out two weeks ago. So, um, yeah. Anyway, um, supporting cast, Scott, um, Haley Bennett playing Roxanne, um, Kelvin Harrison Jr., who you mentioned playing Christian and Ben Mendelsohn as sort of the villain here, DeGuiche. What do you think about the central trio of performers? Yeah, you know. (laughs) Joe, if you want to put your wife or partner or whatever she actually is in terms of title into your film in your main role, I mean, like, why not? Look, I think Haley Bennett really works as this Roxanne character. It adds a level of like metatextualness to the to the whole production that it makes you like, is he is Joe right trying to say something about himself in this movie? Like, I'm not 100 percent like, you know, Roxanne falls in love with like the mind of someone and the body of someone else. Like, what is it? What are you saying, Joe? What are, you, what are you saying about yourself here? Um, but no, I, I thought Haley Bennett was actually pretty good. I, I thought I could have sworn that I had like seen her in stuff before, but apparently I like haven't because I looked at her. Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah, I mean, let me tell you that much. It's not what I thought I had seen her in before. Um, but yeah, I, I apparently really hadn't seen her in anything relevant before because I don't count Hillbilly Elegy as something relevant that I would have seen her in before. Well, that that you should count that as a good thing because the other movie that I saw her in was The Girl on the Train, which is... Also an abomination. Yeah, I haven't seen the girl on the train, but I mean, wow! Look at Joe's connections to all these, to all these things. Right? You got the girl, his partner's in the girl on the train. He's directing the woman in the window, and then Netflix makes an homage to both with uh, the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window, Mm -hmm. or whatever that show's called. That's so funny. Uh, Haley Bennett's good though. I, I thought that maybe this is if this is weird, just tell me. But like, I thought she was in the movie like the right amount. And I thought that the way they framed her was like the right way. Like you didn't get too much from her perspective, which I actually think was kind of important given the power of that of that Dinklage performance and the sort of, you know, lean nature of a lot of the plotting in this film. I think in a longer movie, I think you could have added some more time with her and and seen her POV maybe a little bit more, but thought it worked well for what they were trying to do with this adaptation. Uh, ben Mendelsohn can can Ben Mendelsohn all he wants. Like Degui, he's yeah. great as Degui. Choose he's on really, autopilot, but it yeah, good. really choose it. Um, loved it. Love him and everything. More Ben Mendelsohn, please. And then Kelvin Harrison Jr. Like I, I was a little bit disappointed. I think not because of his performance. I I, I just think something in this Christian Deruvalet character was lacking in this adaptation. He just seems like a, and and maybe this is just a, a flaw in, in the play itself. Again, I don't really remember that well. But he's just like such an airhead. Like I, I just like don't know. He's just a pretty face, and maybe that's the point. Um, but like I, I, I have a hard time connecting on sort of both sides of the coin here. That like if you're Roxanne, how you fall in love with this guy, and then if you're Peter Dinklage, like why you care enough to help this guy when you know that he's not the right person for Roxanne. Like, you know, like this is a weak point in. Maybe it's the maybe it's the story. Maybe it's this mo- this film adaptation in particular that it, the threads sort of kind of tear and, and and fall out a little bit. Again, nothing against Kelvin Harrison Jr. Honestly, I think he's fine. Um, the performance is limited, I think, by the characterization 
he can sing like guy. I mean, we already knew this, right? Cause we saw him in the high note, but like the guy, the guy can sing and he's really good at it. Um, so I'm glad in that sense, he had the chance to, to flex those muscles. Um, but yeah, I think I was a little bit disappointed in that character um, more than any other, certainly. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think most of my problems are just like with the characters themselves, like you said. Like, I don't know sure. how we're supposed to feel about Roxanne and like. Yeah, I mean, she's super vain. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, I guess, again, like, I feel like we just don't really get a lot of interiority for her as far as how does she actually feel about Cyrano, right? Like, or is this just something that Cyrano has cooked up in his own mind that like, oh, well, she'll never love me because I'm you know, small, like, it, you know, this is, she, she's just like everyone else. Is well, he has that moment like in that the bakery or whatever, where he's going to tell, like, it feels like they might have a moment where he's honest with her. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, doesn't quite happen. Yeah. I, I guess I just wanted, you know, like I said, more interiority for that character to, so, so that we can know, like, is this Cyrano's flawed perspective or is she actually, yeah, like you're saying, like, is she vain and she, she thinks she's caring more about appearances, but like also she obviously doesn't only care about that because, you know, she wants someone who can sweep her away with his words. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think Ailey Bennett does a good job. Uh, again, like I, the only things I've seen her in were terrible films. So it was, you know, a good improvement from that. Um, apparently she that movie Swallow that came out a couple of years ago. She was also apparently pretty good in that. Um, so maybe she's having an uptick in her career here, but she's in the Borderlands um, adaptation, the the film the adaptation game. of the video game series. Okay. I don't think she's a major role, but I mean, look, she's gonna get she... overshadowed by like Kate Blanchett and oh, Jamie gosh. Lee Curtis, and there's so many people in that movie. Well, she's a good singer too, which it definitely helps. And Kelvin Harrison Jr., we already knew he was a good singer from the high note, but um you know, he proves that again here. And Peter Dinklage, I should say, like, he's not the best singer, but like, he has a way of sort of like melodically talking himself through the songs, which like yeah. works yeah. for the types of songs that they are. Like, he's not, he's not belting it out or anything. He's not even straight up singing a lot of the time. He's just, kind which of works like, for the Serano character really well. Yeah. Cause like. he's a poet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Kelvin Harrison Jr., yeah. Like, I, I guess I wanted a little bit more from him it's probably just the role i mean it is just the role we know what a talented performer he is yeah. um, i mean the guy's gonna be bb king in the elvis movie later yeah this year. which is I gonna mean, be awesome on. yeah um but yeah it's just not a role that allows him to take over the movie with his charisma like he has in other movies that we've seen um again in loose being maybe the best example where he just sort of like weaponizes that charisma against you um because, you know, it's such a character that you have such mixed feelings about in that movie. But, um, but yeah, so that was a little disappointing. And Ben Mendelsohn, like you said, he's hamming it up like he, you know, can certainly do. So um, no, no complaints there. It's, it's you know, standard performance from him, but it works for the movie. Um, Scott, do you want to add anything more about the music? Uh, I mean, I, I was, like I said, I was generally a fan of it. It's probably, I yeah. mean it's probably more my style of music that I enjoy listening to in general. Um, so that may be a reason why I was high on it. Um, but uh, I thought it was pretty strong. What about you? Yeah, I did. I, I liked it. I thought, I thought it matched really well. It, like I was kind of saying earlier, it, it doesn't feel like something that would inherently have to work on paper. Like it's not immediately obvious to me that you put some like slow rock music in you know, a mid, you know, mid second millennium play and it works immediately. But something again, something about sort of the confluence of the the musical intonations and the weight of the performances, specifically Peter Dinklage's, I think it all comes together pretty nicely. And like I said, there are some there are some moments, you know, someone someone to say, I think that was a great um, a great three or four minutes in the film. I, I loved that scene. There's a few others. Um, I'm horrible with with music, with the actual song's names, but there's a few others as well. And, and I do find, I did generally find, I think, that the musical numbers were better than the, oftentimes, than the interstitial moments in, in the film. And, and I think you can probably, based on what we were saying already, 
understand why that might be because it's not the narrative plotting that's working super well at these musical moments that are inserted that they are tangent to the plot in some instances, but mostly separate because, you know, this is not constructed as a musical. So it's kind of hard to then, you know, write underwrite the musical or underwrite the play with with songs and have it actually carry the plot. I think a lot of times those songs are sort of like moments of emotion bursting out um, off the page less um carrying the plot forward and i and i appreciated it for that and i like those moments a lot yeah uh i agree with that again i think it's it's just like the set pieces in a way or what stands out musically yeah. again like i love that scene that's probably my favorite scene to spoil what we're getting to in a second but um is that scene with all the soldiers just the sort of the un, unrelated song but um mm -hmm. i don't know just kind of sets the atmosphere of like these people being that's thrust somber, into right? thrust yeah. into this yeah war without you know their having any say in it and more uh, than that being asked to basically commit suicide essentially yeah because uh de Guiche has too much pride or whatever that's really what it boils down to yeah. um but uh yeah so that was that was effective i mean the balcony scene is is great i mean obviously a little having some fun with like Romeo and Juliet here, you know, with introducing sort of a third person into the scene sure. with Cyrano being the words. Um, it, it's fun. It's romantic. It's, it's a good scene. Um, and then, yeah, you know, like you said, the someone, someone to say song is good and they reprise it. Like it, it opens the movie and then they reprise it with Christian later on. Um, it's good music. I, again, I don't know that it's like the type where I'm going to go, let's go put on the album now and, um you know blast the songs and whatnot like i've mm -hmm. you know have done with west side story or in the heights or something but it, it's it's trying to you know be something completely different and i think it succeeds for for you know what it is trying to do certainly um sure. of being this sort of more emotion driven music than like driven by I don't even know what the word for it. Driven by over, you know, production and bombast and all that. Um, I think you get a little bit of both with someone to say, right? Because yeah, there's a little bit, uh, more you know, again, you get some camera work, some harmonizing, you know, some group vocals and stuff like that. But it's still not anything compared to like the ninety-six thousand number from In the Heights, <laughs> for example. Um, you don't say, yeah. Which again, they both are, are certainly have their merits um, and and fit their respective productions very well. But um, yeah, I, I guess the only other thing I have to add is you know overall it's a it's a you know handsomely produced movie. Like you know you mentioned, there's some good camera stuff, like the you know some fluid takes in those um, sword fights. Like they're just choreographed really well. Um, yeah, I mean everything looks really nice like i didn't have any problems with like the color palette or anything like that like i sometimes do and um in films like you know it it um i could see everything which is always a plus <laughs> are you ready for vengeance next week uh the, yeah the color that, palette that's be another matter but yeah um it feels it's kind of depressing right that that's like a compliment to actually give to a movie nowadays it's like i could see everything um I could understand just everything turn your that was brightness going up. on visually. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I wish I could sometimes in certain <laughs> movies. But Scott, anything to add before we wrap up? Because we definitely have some Oscar stuff to talk about. <laughs> no, I, ultimately, I feel like, unfortunately, this movie is going to go by, go by the mental wayside, maybe like it did for voters who actually saw it, of the few who probably did. Um, it, it was good in the moment, but, you know, a few weeks from now, you're a year from now, definitely, right? Like, I'm not going to think back to 2021 and be like, you know, Cyrano was a standout, a standout production, even though I enjoyed it, right? Like, we just talked about it. I, mean, I enjoyed it. Thought the thought that lead performance was really strong. But I don't know if it if it had enough hooks in me to, to stick with me in a meaningful way. Yeah, it didn't come close to my top 20 when I put it in my no. 2021 list. But um, it's a solid movie. And go watch uh, other Joe Wright stuff if you haven't seen it. Again, I think... Those three other period films he did are even better than this is. Um, yeah, go and, check them out on Netflix. Yeah, I think they all are on Netflix, aren't they? Um, or at least a couple of them are. I'm mainly yeah, just making a woman in the window joke. But yeah, I, I definitely uh, think like uh, 
Anna Karenina is on that. Pride and Prejudice, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, they're all excellent. Um, I guess he was just missing Kira Knightley here, like because she was in all of them. Um, I guess she should. If Kira Knightley was Roxanne, though, that'd have been so eye rolly. I'm sorry, like that'd have been. I mean, Maybe. it's pretty eye rolly to put she your, can put your partner again, again. Yeah, true. I mean, uh, it's kind of eye rolly to put Haley Bennett in it too. I guess if you know the context, but I mean, nepotism. It's a, it's a real thing, but um. Yeah, uh, Scott, your favorite scene or moment from Cyrano. I've already kind of said what mine is. Yeah, I think I kind of said mine too, to be honest. It's someone to say for me. I really enjoyed that musical number. Um, you sort of get all like the main male characters in one scene between Dagish and Deruvalet and Cyrano. And then there's also the, the the troop sergeant. I don't know. I don't remember that that character's name as well, um, who was in it. Also, and then, yeah, you know, I, I like the little sparring match they have that then segues into the musical number. It was good. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, you get the sense that's like the end of act one, you know, big yeah. number or whatever. Like if you were seeing this on stage, like uh, one day more from uh, Les Mis or something. Um, yeah. But all right, Scott, that actually, I think one day more is not at the end of act one, though. To it's be not. It's do, the, do you hear the people sing? Sorry. Is the end yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I knew it was one of the rousing numbers. I, that's why I, that's why I second guessed myself there for a second. I was like, no, one day more is actually an act. Two. One day more uh, is anyway. like towards the end of the end of it. No, it's not towards the end. It's in the middle. It's, it's in, like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like in the first part of act two. But um, anyway, uh, enough about Les Mis. Uh Scott, we're gonna. Oh, we gotta put a score on it. Wow, I just that totally messed me up. But uh, sorry, let's put a score on it. What do you give Cyrano out of 10? I'll give it a seven, 7.7. 7. It was solid. Um, I, I, I definitely enjoyed it. I definitely think people should check it out if you're at all intrigued by this. Um, but yeah, not like gonna light up the world as far as my 2021 list or anything. Okay, Scott, now uh, it is time to take a break. And when we come back from that break, we are going to be talking about the latest Oscar controversies. And you are going to have some news for us on Luca Guadagnino's uh, latest uh, film. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. back to this episode of some like it scott scott we're going to talk about the latest oscar news here in just a couple of minutes but first you had some news that you wanted to uh tell us about one of luca guadagnino's many pending projects yeah honestly couldn't tell you what those other pending projects are i just know that they're out there because i know that we've talked about luca guadagnino a lot on the podcast over the last couple of years and i don't think he's had a movie come out so he has to have had several in the works at this point but it was announced, I think it was a couple of weeks ago now, to be fair, that he is going to be um, making a movie, you know, on a topical, rele topically relevant, I suppose, because it is MGM, I believe, making this movie. So the same people who made and released Cyrano, but it's a, a film called Challengers, also a romantic drama, similar to maybe I guess MGM just has a thing for romantic dramas. I don't know. Um, but it has a pretty interesting cast list, at least from my perspective. It's got Zendaya. Um, who I don't think I need to tell people what she's been in, but uh, obviously she was the lead in the trailer of Dune. That's probably what she's most famous for. Yes. Um, and then, and then uh, Josh O'Connor, who was uh, Prince Charles in seasons three and four of The Crown. I think he won at least he's one. Mr. Emmy Elton and Emma. Yeah. Okay, sure. That is true. He is. Um, I did not see The Crown before that, he was but great. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he, he won at least one Emmy, I believe, for his work on The Crown, but maybe he won too. And then West Side Story. You talked about West Side Story earlier on this episode. Uh, Mike Feist is also going to be in this film. So that trio, not a trio that I've ever thought about in conjunction with each other, but a trio that I'm like fairly excited about. I mean, those are three people that I think are really talented young actors. You know, Zendaya probably has burst through onto the scene a little bit um, more aggressively. I think it's fair to say. Uh, but Josh O'Connor, Mike Feist, I'm excited to see sort of what they do next coming out of their most recent projects, right? Like for Josh O'Connor, The Crown, where he played, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a character who is is 
I think they find it difficult to redeem um, in the context of the show. And, you know, just like also, I think in general, when you read a little bit more about, you know, what what his life has been like, Prince Charles. But um, and then Mike Feist, who for me, I think was was my favorite performance in West Side Story. So seeing what they're going to do next, working with an uh, with a director like Luca Guadagnino, who sort of, you know, made his name in a romantic in a romantic drama with Call Me By Your Name to have these three come together and and star in a in a Luca Guadagnino romantic drama. That's really exciting. You know, Zendaya clearly has the flexibility to to do just about anything. Um, it, it seems like at least at this point. So I'm really curious to see how she will play off of, of these two uh, male co-stars who I can only imagine will be some sort of love triangle. Although I could be wrong about that. Yeah. And I don't know if you mentioned this, but this movie's about tennis, which uh, I know yeah. is something that you're a fan of as well. So um, I have no interest to see tennis in movies, but I, I do like tennis. Yes. Yeah. Um, hopefully it is better than the tennis related film that we saw last year, which was just kind of meh, uh, that being King Richard, of course, but, um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm excited. It's, it's definitely an intriguing cast, like three very different personalities, um, which may make for interesting romantic chemistry and everything on screen. So I, I, you know, I think I don't mean that in a negative way and Luca Guadagnino, he, you know, if you've seen a bigger splash, he he has he, he's skillful at navigating those types of stories, or at least he has shown that he is in the past with, you know, that movie where there was just everyone sleeping with everyone and Ray Fiennes and Tilda Swinton and Dakota Johnson and, you know, a, a bunch of um, attractive people. But, um, yeah. yeah, that's a fun movie. Check that one out. But, yeah, this, this sounds interesting. Um, Zendaya, I'm ready to see her in some, like, serious projects um again you don't think Dune was a, is a serious project no i don't uh <laughs> dune was a serious project um she wasn't really in it but the trailer I, she will dune. be in part two um yeah, a lot yeah. more from what i understand but yeah i mean spider-man definitely not but and then euphoria like increasingly this season i have begun to believe that it is not it is it is an entertaining uh, you know as hell and like appointment television and everything and i i am pro euphoria don't get me wrong but it is not a very something to be taken very seriously euphoria tiktokers stand down don't 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 target yeah (laughs) and and i don't think that her performance is necessarily the soul-stirring portrayal of addiction that like maybe sam levinson is hoping that it is but um, i think certain episodes certain episodes yeah yeah, maybe but like I, i think that the rest of the show and what is going on cheapens maybe some of the hard-hitting effect of um the the, the yeah. drug stuff which is which it, is fine again it provides not, a contrast <laughs> i am not coming to euphoria at this point for you know addiction content a, a dare program yeah like that that's not really what i ever got from the show in the first place was really the strong part of it but you know maybe it will have an impact on some people anyway uh sorry to, to read the log line for this film to your point though it's Tashi, who is who is Zendaya, a tennis player turned coach who's taken her husband, Art, who is Mike Feist, and transformed him from a mediocre player into a world-famous Grand Slam champion. To jolt him out of his recent losing streak, she makes him play a challenger event, close to the lowest level of tournament on the Pro Tour, where he finds himself standing across the net from the once promising but now burnt out Patrick, who is Josh O'Connor, his former best friend, and Tashi's former boyfriend. Old rivalries on and of off course. the court are reignited of course yeah uh um, there you go and hopefully ray fines shows up and dances at a certain point because until the swinton happen. shows up and does some body horror stuff but it'll be highlight of uh, a bigger splash but um yeah that if i'm excited for the movie i think that's really all there is to say at this point yeah. um all right scott moving on the oscars are back on their bs um <laughs> i don't know yeah. another way to say it than that but uh yeah they are now They've announced, um, I guess, this past week that they're like going to be to yeah. attempting what they um, attempted a couple of years ago. And w- it was so soundly um, shouted down that they decided, no, actually, never mind, we're not going to do this. But now they're they're committed this time, apparently. Um, and they are going to be... This thing's going to end up uh, being a clown. Presenting five of the technical awards... Not on the live broadcast. 
So they will be on the broadcast, but yes. they will not be live. You will not be watching them presented live. Basically, they will be presented and, before the an show hour starts. before the show. Yeah. They are going to present these awards like they normally would, but that will not be you know live part of the live telecast. And then they will edit that that in to the live telecast, like strategically later on, yeah. like when we're actually watching it um, yeah. live. It's confusing, but basically they are. So you are going to see every award presented. Um, yes. I, I think it's important to, to state that because what the Academy was talking about a few years ago was doing it during commercial breaks where you would have not seen it at all. Um, yeah. But so, so you know, that people have feelings about that. I have feelings about that, certainly. Um, still, even if you are seeing every um, award presented, these people are not getting their Oscar moment, right? Like uh, we're talking about an hour before the show. There probably won't even the theater is probably going to be like half full, right? Or it's going to be full with seat fillers, like not the actual stars, yeah. um, because people are still going to be outside of the red carpet an hour before the show. Um, so these people are not really getting their Oscar moment. I am sure that parts of their presentations are going to be heavily edited just to protect the length of the show because they're like swearing this is going to be three hours this year. Other, otherwise, um, there's no reason to present it before and yeah. still show it if you weren't going to cut down the the presentation. Yeah. And it is just the principle of the thing, right? Sing singling out these categories and saying, well, we think these are what people are least interested in. The so craft categories, yeah. I mean, it's they, like they, all they, the craft categories. It's like literally Including all of them. Including best original score, which is crazy. Like, yeah. of all out of all the craft categories, the one that people even casual film goers can watch a film and go, oh yeah, that was a really good score. Like that is the one element of the production, the one element of the production that even a casual moviegoer I think can like appreciate and say, yeah, I want to actually see this award presented. Um, but look, Scott, as, as many people have pointed out, um, who are they trying to, to win with these changes? Because this no, is not going to convince anyone out there who is not watching the Oscars that, oh yeah, maybe we should actually watch the Oscars now. And it is going to alienate people. Again, it's the baseball. It's it's It all comes back to baseball. All of life can be related to baseball. But Rob Manfred trying to introduce, like sped up, like these, these artificial ways to um, speed up the game, like putting a runner on second base during extra innings now. Um, so like, the guild, nope, do you think nope, the guilds are going to strike and we're not going to have a movie season next year now? I don't know. But anyway, pace of play is not an issue in baseball. And it's not an issue in movies either, in the Oscars either. And the Oscars are trying to kowtow to an audience that doesn't exist and alienate the people who do exist. People like us who are like, yes, I want to see the editing award presented. Because editing is a very crucial part of the film, of a, of a movie it, it is a part that uh, alfonso Cuarón or whatever had that quote a couple years ago when the academy was doing this where he was like no film has ever been made without editing like there have been films without sound without you know yada 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 but no film has ever been made without editing and he's correct like and i have like actual thoughts about you know which what what films had the best editing what i want to win what i don't want to win like as do film fans, right? Which are the people that the Oscars should be for, for people who like movies, not for people who go watch three movies a year and are crying because Spider-Man was not nominated for Best Picture. The, like, the funny thing is, is I, the... I actually don't think, it, I'm not even convinced any real people are actually crying that Spider-Man yeah, didn't that's probably Picture. That may be true. But anyway, what are they, like, what is their thought process here? Like, I have no idea what they could possibly be thinking. Because again, like, again, it has gotten the exact same reaction. It has only been three years since they tried this the first time. Like, it has, got, and it has gotten the exact same reaction as it got three years ago. Like, why are they doing this? What is the point? And, and I should add also that there was another quote which came out a couple of days ago, sort of providing even more context on this, which was, some, it seemed to indicate that the um, awards, when they are presented an hour beforehand, that the winners are going to be put on social media, like live, as that is happening. So when that when they actually show up in the live telecast, we will have our, we will already know who has won, um, which is also just stupid. Again, someone pointed, someone responded to that and was like, "Oh, because it works so well for the Golden Globes." Like, what are they thinking? What are they thinking, Scott? 
I couldn't tell you. Some decisions, some decisions, frankly, I understand, even if I disagree with. Like, and I think, that, and I think that some of those decisions are poorly implemented. But this is one that I'm just like, but why? But why? Why would you do this? Yeah, and you know, there are other moments that have been going around um, on Twitter as well. Like they've, well, number one, they are now doing this like fan voting thing. Um, where they're going to give out some sort of special prize to that's going to get clowned. Well, it already is getting clowned because Cinderella is leading the vote. I don't know if you saw that, Scott, but like the that. first the first stats showed that the Camila Cabello version of Cinderella, which of course was widely panned. I don't know um, a single human being who actually finished that. Like they turned it off after the yeah. first ten minutes of that atrocity. Is is leading the vote, and you know what? I hope it wins because the Oscars deserve to get clowned for doing something this stupid you play stupid games you win stupid prizes um and so as we Taylor can say academy award-winning cinderella won more academy awards than red rocket they also uh, put a tweet out the academy did of like what was your biggest fan cheering moment oh that's all that one 2021 too. and it was the like, options they gave were so oh my god okay so, sorry sorry about this because i had yeah I had such a such a passionate response to this they one of the options they gave and you know I get it. Not all movies can be in theaters right now. Some release strategies need to be direct to home video. Netflix has. But like if you're having a crowd cheering moment, I just kind of think you have to be in a theater for that to like really count. Why yeah. is Zack Snyder's Justice League on the list? Why is Zack Snyder's Justice League anywhere? But but it's because, again, they are trying to kowtow to these people who the fans these were the only movies that they watched. Right. These yeah. five movies, you know, The Matrix was in there, a couple others as well. Like. You know, they these are the only movies that these people watch, so they're not movie fans. Like they well, they okay, are not okay, going okay, to okay. ever care okay. about the Oscars unless you just nominate all superhero films. I don't think you have to watch like thirty movies a year to be to be a movie fan. But I take your point. But they are not they are not the people who are going to care about the Oscars. I guess is what they're I'm certainly not the people who are going to log on to Twitter and vote in an Oscars poll. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so I mean it, that that type of stuff is just absurd. Like, what, again, what what are they thinking? Like, it, it has become a joke. Like, they they are turning themselves into a parody of themselves, trying to win over these people. Like I said, who are never going to care about the Oscars. It's depressing. There's an interesting comparison that I was thinking about, where again, I I don't know how how tuned in you are to like video game Twitter and like conversations around the video game awards. But, like, there's the Video Game Awards every December. It is, like, many people call it, like, the Oscars for video games, although I think that's inaccurate, personally. I think the Dice Awards are more like the Oscars for video games. But a lot of people think of it that way because it's this big touchstone moment. It's actually broadcast live, um, has a lot of viewership. And one of the things that a lot of the mainstream industry players um, sort of note is that, is that the big draw for audiences to that is the, is these huge, like, game announcements, right? Like, you get a huge slew of debut trailers, game announcements, things like that at it. And it sort of relegates the awards themselves to be second class to the, to the announcements and to the trailers. And I think the real, like a reality that we're heading toward is that, uh, or sorry, I guess to close this loop, like the people who are mainstream in the video game world would like the VGAs to become more like the Oscars and to cut out, the sort of flashiness and focus more on the celebration of the games themselves as opposed to new announcements and, and the oscars went the reverse yeah. and the oscars is going well i mean to be fair i don't think the vgas is actually going the direction of the oscars i think that is what it is and it's going to yeah. be because that's the only way it can be financially viable for because mm -hmm. it has to be able to generate audiences and buzz because the average the, the truth is like the average moviegoer who only sees a few movies a year and like the average video game player who only plays a game or two a year most people, most people only care about the next thing. They don't actually care about celebrating the actual like best of things from that yeah. year for mo to, for the most part, right? And I think the Oscars has found themselves in a position where they're trying to they're they're trying to hold their ground. As much as we want to like mock them, laugh them, they are trying really hard to hold their ground and have their award show be as close to the way they truly want it, while also still trying to attract new fans and and sponsors things like. But the truth is, like, the real way to capture the audience that the Oscars is trying to capture, this audience that you say that that doesn't exist. I think the audience does exist, but what they're doing is not getting them anywhere close to getting the audience. The only way to do that, and I shudder even speaking these words out loud, 
is to start having like huge debut trailers like the Super Bowl, like start like have huge movie trailers in the middle of it. Like that is the way to get the audience yeah. that you don't have. But like obviously that's horrible. Like we I don't want that in my award show. Like have that in the Super Bowl. I don't I don't want to see that at the Oscars. But like if it wants to really truly grow its appeal and audience, like that's the kind of like behavior or that's the kind of direction it's going to have to go in. And it's like this weird cross section of an award show where mainstream people, right? Like the cinephiles, like uh, of the video game world want the award show to go this direction of the Oscars and the Oscars to survive is trying to go the other direction to gain a wider audience. It, and it's this like weird situation. If that's like. what you want to do, just, I just, just create another award show or like put, put this on another award show. Like really, that's like my solution for all this. Like, we just have to keep the Oscars what it is. Like the Oscars needs to be. Well, it's just not going to be relevant. That's the thing, right? Like it's not going to be and on that's ABC. Fine. That is fine. It will still be watched by people who actually care about movies. Um, and yeah. that's the most important thing. And like, I also think, look, I know the viewership has been declining over the years. I also think people are reading a little too much into last year's Oscars in a freaking COVID year when nobody saw any movies. Um, of course, the viewership was going to be like historically low. I think that they will there will be a comeback this year. No, they're not going to see numbers like they once saw, like with when the Oscars were, you know, second biggest to the NFL to the Super Bowl or something. I but, mean, they were second biggest a couple of years ago. Yeah, that well, that's and that's again, that's kind but of that's part but of that's the level of viewership up. they need to maintain their deal with ABC. That's the thing. Yeah, so but but just don't read too much into 2020 is what I'm saying. Like 2020 yeah. was just a weird year for all reasons. Nobody saw any movies. Nobody knew what was nominated last year. I think this year is going to be different, even if Spider-Man is not nominated. Right. I, I just kind of think that it's the same saw this year, though, in the context, right? Like, I don't know if you went to work and asked like five people, do you think they'd know what was nominated this year? I don't know, but I, I still think it's we're in a better place than we were last year. Um, yeah. And especially, you know, a lot of these movies are on streaming now. So like a lot of the Best Picture nominated movies are on streaming. So people are going to continue to watch them if they've not already watched them. Um, you know, like just this weekend on Twitter, West Side Story has been like blowing up because somebody posted a clip of it and was like, this shot is amazing. And everyone was like, yeah, yeah actually, this shot is amazing. Twitter's just not representative, though. That's the only problem. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe. It's definitely um, not. <laughs> it's definitely not. It's 2% uh, of the U.S. population. Yeah, I guess. Uh, I guess. But anyway, my, my point is the Oscars just need to be for people who appreciate film. And they are not going in that direction right now. Like, for they, they believe that the solution to the viewership issues is to try to appeal to people who are never going to care or really pay that much attention and alienate the, the people themselves. who are already there. Um, yeah, just suck it up and be happy with what you have. You're still going to do good numbers. And I, 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 at least I feel that way. I, if you, you know, without doing all this stupid stuff, if you just do it traditionally, like you did it before, I still think that um, the Oscars are going to do good numbers. And, you know, they announced the hosts as well, I guess is a final point here. Like, yeah. Again, I don't know what they're thinking. Like, if you want to like attract people, like maybe the host is an area where you could actually do that without compromising the integrity of what the Oscars actually is. Um, but they went and got Amy Schumer, who is somebody that is like not popular, right? Like, is it there's a large subsection of people who are not a fan of her at all. She's had like some controversial stuff like that she has said, like in her comedy and stuff. Um just a very weird choice. Um, and then who else did they also get? Uh, who, who are the other people? Wanda Sykes, right? Wanda um, Sykes was one of them, yeah. Yeah, and and the Regina Hall was the third person, right? Yes. So they got basically three comedians, which I don't know. I mean, maybe they're trying to capture, recapture the heyday of like Billy Crystal hosting the Oscars and whatnot. And I don't know if there's going to be a monologue or something, but. Um, and they're all hosting least, separate parts of the op. like they're not right, hosting right, simultaneously. Right. It's in three acts, yeah, which but is probably better. I least, guess I don't know. At least if you want to do like some sort of comedic thing, at least get like comedians that people actually care about. Get Bo Burnham to host the Oscars. Like that would make people watch, right? Like that would make a certain audience of people that they are probably trying to attract that they are trying to attract with all these other changes. Certainly more relevant in twenty twenty in twenty twenty one than Amy Schumer. I mean. 
Scott, should I say it? Should they get Kevin Hart to host? <laughs> more people would more people would watch it than if. Well, he's uh, the reason they went hostless a few years no, ago. I, I know, I know, yeah. I know. I got, I got the joke. I'm just yeah. saying, if they came back and did it now, I think it would probably attract people. You know, some of the people they're trying to get at least to pay attention or yeah. get Ricky Gervais. I mean, they're never going to do it, but like he, yeah. he, you know. He is the one person over the past few years, awards host-wise, who has consistently gotten a ton of eyes on what he has done. Maybe not like even watching the live telecast or something, but like watching this the video on YouTube afterwards of his monologue. Like I'm sure that that thing from the last time he hosted the, the Globes has millions and millions of views now. If the Oscars came out and said, yeah, Ricky Gervais is going to host, you don't think that would make people want to watch it? Of course it would. Uh, more than right now but i don't know if it's yeah the, it's the way they need i think john oliver would be an interesting host personally john but... oliver sure i mean you know anything is is i feel like is better than what they they've done like, anyone relevant would have been nice i mean i'm sorry regina hall i'm sorry wanda sykes i'm not sorry any, Schumer, anyone relevant and but, instead they went out yeah. and got three people who were not relevant not just yeah. one person but three people yeah they didn't they didn't it's, hedge they just went like huh how about all of you are irrelevant <laughs> sorry it's just I mean, absolutely I that's like pretty harsh but it's absolutely crazy how they just like continue to make these horrible decisions nothing but these horrible decisions that you look at and you're like what could their thought process have possibly been? Not even like I understand where they were, where they were coming from on this. Or yeah, it was like, how on earth could a group of rational adults have sat in a room and said, "Yeah, I can." I can only idea. my only reaction to what you're saying right there is that that wasn't their first choice. <laughs> no one wanted to. No one wanted to do wanted to host it. That's that's the only yeah. thing that I can imagine. Maybe so. Maybe these were the only three people who were free that weekend. But um, I, I really don't know. It's it's depressing. Like I said, uh, of course I'll still watch. But um, so yeah, John Mulaney and Olivia Munn to host it together. <clears throat> fun. Increasing. Yeah, John Mulaney. That's another example of like if they said John Mulaney was going to host the Oscars. He hosted SNL last night. He was hilarious. I watched. Yeah. His um, it's depressing. I will still watch, but it is in, it is you know increasingly become a shell. We'll watch it together. We'll watch was, it together yeah. and and complain the entire time and not actually listen to any of it. Even two years ago, even the 2019, like Oscars for films released in 2019, we're fine. Like, why are they messing with this? Whatever. Um, all right, that'll do it for this episode, Scott. I've had enough. Um, yeah. Time to where can our all. listeners find you on social media? At a Shelton two zero one three. And I am at Scarby Dent on all of the platforms as well. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. But even if you can't support us over there, uh, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you will be back on our next episode in which we will be reviewing the first big blockbuster of 2022, Matt Reeves' The Batman. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.